Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have the return of Adam Lippi. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Gary. You've been showing up on this podcast quite a bit all lately. <laughs> I even did yesterday, I did a guest spot, a pinch hit on Mind Dog, too, even though, I'm, even though I'm scheduled to do an interview with him tomorrow. Um, and he, his guest didn't show up. So I saw that he was guestless and I, uh, Hey, I said, I'll pinch it if you want. And so he had me on for a little over an hour and we just talked. Yeah. Matt's awesome. He's a great guy. Yep. Um, so you have, when is your movie coming out? So, uh, it first came out in August and then it played at the colonial theater until, um, October 1st and then starting Friday, uh, depending on when you release this, it's going to be um, streaming off of the Lemley Theater website, which is lemley.com. It's already up, but you can't buy a ticket yet. And you'll be able to watch it at home. So it'll be playing there for a minimum of two weeks. And then um, if it goes well, like it did at the Colonial, they, they extended it a couple of times, then um, it'll it'll continue to play there. And then uh, we'll um, use that to uh, hopefully get some more theaters that I've been having conversations with. Awesome. And um, uh, what, what's the title of the movie and what is it about? I mean, I sure, know we've covered this stuff in <clears throat> other episodes, but... Wait, so not everybody has, li- has listened to all that are the entire episode right before this and they're not 100% up to speed? I, I'm going to have to repeat myself? That's terrible. Yeah, uh, man, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking with you. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so the film is a horror comedy. It's called Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. Uh, it's about a viral pandemic in inner city Philadelphia. Uh, it takes place on the hottest day of the year. And what happens is um, that this virus gets loose and... Um, uh, because it causes massive dehydration and because it's so hot, people start attacking each other for their bodily fluids. Um, one of the attacks is caught on a viral video and um, uh, the military goes into a local hospital to try to slow everything down. They realize they can't uh, come up with a vaccine or deal with it quickly enough. So they fence off inner city Philadelphia uh, to let everybody die. And it's about the people who are left there to die. And I know that sounds uh, very grim, but it's actually more of a comedy mixed with horrific elements. So these people are thirsty. Yes, essentially. Their bodies are melting from the inside. You know, I hate it when I get like that thirsty where I have to consume another human being. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming that your brain's not working at that point. Mm. So you wouldn't be conscious of it. I mean, that's part of what's going on is that people aren't, they're just acting like animals, honestly. Okay, so you reach a certain point of dehydration where you're not even thinking about it. You're just acting on instinct. Correct, yes. And so you you kind of go insane. The movie doesn't explore so much the psychology of the infected people, though. It's really just um, what the resulting incidents uh, after someone is infected, you know, whether they attempt to stay hydrated or not, and how that changes uh, their uh, mindset or lack of mindset. Um. So I know I understand like, like you know like they they kind of end up in like containment is that correct? Um, so some some of the victims end up in the hospital, um, and then some of the victims don't make it, 
and uh, some of the victims start attacking other people. And then um, the people who were left in the neighborhood who were just trying to survive, um, they uh, make a decision to um, basically uh, go kind of hide out in the, in the basement and then they kind of get stuck in the basement. And so they have to spend a lot of time there, both, you know, amongst strangers and uh, also, you know, separated from their family. Mm. Um, so ha- like, why don't they just go good um, to the store and buy a bunch of water? What you mean the infected people? Yeah. Well, their brains are shutting down, and they're just they're just on automatic pilot. It's it's only a couple hours that they after they've been affected mm-hmm. that they start to behave this way. And there's one there's one instance where you see a woman who was infected only hours before, and you watch her struggle, and then you just watch her mind shut off, and she attacks somebody. So it's not really a matter of that. And there there are people who do drink water, but it doesn't stop the disease from working. It just stops them from behaving like a maniac before their brain shuts down. Wow. That sounds kind of grim. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. So what inspired, what inspired you to write this film? Well, initially I had uh, had a conversation with somebody and they said, um, Hey, I want to make a zombie movie. And I said, everybody makes zombie movies. Why, why do that? Everyone, you know, has that, that well is dry. And I said, you could you could make a virus movie and you could make up all the same rules and it wouldn't change anything. And you can, um, you know, you don't have to abide by the normal fast zombie, slow zombie dichotomy that everyone does. And you could say, okay, you know, the disease does this and people react this way and it takes this long. And, uh, you know, they, you know, some people are conscious, some people aren't. You could do whatever you want. And uh, he didn't agree. So I went off and I wrote it anyway. And um, initially I had the idea of uh, the early drafts were really just carnage. It was basically, because uh, I used to be a film critic, I'd seen so many horror films. And um, I wrote down, uh, before writing the first draft, I wrote down 60 ways I'd never seen anybody die in a movie. And the first draft had 39 of them. So it was just soaked in violence and carnage. It was very long too. It was like, if you, you know, the you're supposed to say like a page a minute um, of, of, of script. So that draft was in 140 some odd pages, which would make a two and a half hour movie. Now, honestly, if you were to shoot that draft, it would be a four hour movie um, because even the, uh, when we shot the, the, the sixth draft of the script after I'd cut out about nearly 50 pages, the rough cut of that probably ran nearly three hours. So we cut it down to about an hour and 40 and so if we shot the 140 some odd page version, it would have been even, you know, we probably near four hours if we put all of it in there. It just was just had so much violence and it was just endless. We had a lot of character development, but it was just, yeah. Anybody who would read it would be like, wow, this is really well done, but I don't know what the point is. And I would put things in there that were about people and that were about, um, you know, what I really wanted to deal with, which was you never see these kind of either virus movies or zombie movies or vampire movies, or you never see them in the inner city really that often. And I wanted it to be about how um, this is like an additional problem that these people go with, not that, that's like a pylon for them. So this isn't the only thing that's bothering them. And so maybe they don't react in the most extreme way because, hey, this is just you know, oh, well, there's rents due and the building's falling apart. And, you know, I'm struggling with it. You know, we, 
I live too far away from my job or I'm unemployed. Oh, and now the, the, the city's falling apart because there's a viral pandemic. So it's just like a, an additional annoyance. So I wanted to deal with that, but I also wanted to deal with, you know, what's the real subject of the movie, which is basically that, that um, if this happened in the inner city, the government probably wouldn't care and they'd be relatively indifferent to the fact that all these brown and black people and poor people were, were dying because they'd be like, yeah, I mean, sure, let it, let's let it go let's see what happens and then they they think of okay well let's let the the disease run rampant and see and see if uh, uh we can use this in some some sort of viral warfare if that's just what we want to do because the only thing that's important here is that the press doesn't find out that we did it and, and so i was that was all in the early drafts and then mm-hmm. as i kept cutting back and cutting out like sort of the big action sequences and stuff and the the, the larger horror sequences that didn't have anything to do with the plot necessarily they were just you know spectacle honestly um they were fun but you know they they would just slow down the movie and they would have been expensive um you know it became more centered on on the people itself which was obviously the most important part so i hope that i hope that is a a full enough answer it is it is so do you i mean with all that writing that you did um do you ever think that you might try to make a prequel to it no, no, I would never make uh, anything like it ever again. Um, not even close. Um, all the material that I got cut out is, is uh, you know, way over the top action and violence and horror stuff, but I don't really have any place for it. I mean, making a horror movie, you have to fulfill certain expectations. You've got to have a certain amount of violence and sexuality and, you know, carnage um, at the expense of character. And I tried to balance that as best as I could. But the, the stuff that I got cut, that got cut out, there was a point where I discussed... Um, with a, a stuntman if, if we could incorporate some of these action sequences that I've written into a, into a story, but it would have also been expensive and ludicrous. And, you know, my heart wasn't necessarily in it. You, you make a horror film at the beginning because it's uh, in, as your first film, because um, it's easy to get made. It's um, much easier to uh, distribute uh, without having big stars in it because people will accept a horror film. Um, and it also doesn't have to be like the best movie, which it won't mm-hmm. be if it's your first film. So you try to do all the things that you have to do in a horror film. And then you, the rest of it, you can do with what you want. And so that's how I, that's why I thought of it is like, okay, as long as I check these boxes, the rest of it is for, is for me, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't do a prequel because and it's not that I didn't like the, working with either the people or, you know, the, the, the actors or the crew or anything like that. It's just, there's so many downsides to making a horror film that you can't anticipate, but you're just, you know, you're hoping the makeup works and sometimes it doesn't. And then you have to fix it in post-production or hope you can construct it. And it's just much simpler to um, not have that much violence and just shoot, you know, in a lower budget and not have to worry. Like, you know, I made the mistake of having like all these characters, like it's like 45, speaking parts in a movie that runs 96 minutes, you know, pre-credits, that's not, you know, you, people will forget who's who if you keep doing that. If everyone's just talking, they're not talking simultaneously, but um, yeah, you got to kind of limit that. And, and I, uh, the stuff that I cut out, I mean, some of it's fun, but um, I don't, don't miss any of it, honestly. Um, you know, some of it we did shoot and didn't end up in the movie. And I don't, I don't really think, um, in any other context, it would work anyhow. So, uh, yeah, I don't, there's not really an interest in shooting like a prequel or anything. Um, 
let alone, you know, because what would you have to do with the characters, uh, like, you know, have the actors, like, de-age themselves, I guess. <laughs> you know, whenever I could get financing for that in another seven years, and that would have been 12 years since they shot the footage or something like that. Um, what do you do with the, 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 the child actor in the film who, you know, would now be, you know, by that point in her 20s? Um, so uh, not, not really. I wouldn't want to shoot a, a, a prequel. Um, just, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but, you know, that most of it wouldn't work in any other context. Right. So it, it sounds like the reason, one of the, thing, one of the cool things that you've done with this is, is you know, shooting it in the inner city. Um, you know, it, it, it sounds like the government maybe had a view that the, because this was happening in, in, in well, I can't talk today, in the inner city, uh, that, you know, it's more like a sacrificial demographic, basically. Yeah, that's that's part of the point. Yeah, is is that that it absolutely would be they would be sacrificial, and that's the thought process is that they won't that they won't be missed. And so, you know, are they going to take the gamble to do it? Are they going to speed up the process on purpose? I mean, that's what you know. That's why you'd watch the movie to find out if that's what they do. So the real villain here is not necessarily the virus, but the government. Right. Exactly. The government is uh, the virus. Mm-hmm is uh just a you know symptom i guess and the government is the one taking advantage of it or being indifferent to the results of the virus um in the very first introduction of the villain he's basically saying that he's going to commit viral warfare so you have the thought of oh is is he being serious or not and then you know because it's the first time he appears um and if anybody wants to watch the trailer that a lot of that scene is in the trailer um, nobody would take that seriously because it, it's uh, he says so many outlandish things in such a ridiculous way that uh, uh, my idea was originally let's put the James Bond villain scene where he explains all the plot points but put it in the first scene um, where you know the, the the villain just says and here's what I thought of and here's why I did this and here's who I talked to and now you know the whole story and I thought well, why don't you put that in the beginning because if you said all that ridiculous stuff then uh, nobody would believe you. And it was a it was a, a thought that occurred to me about um, I was I was thinking of uh, the John Cusack movie Gross Point Blank, where he's playing a hitman who uh, goes to his high school reunion, and uh, nobody believes that he's actually a hitman. And someone says, "Hey, what do you do?" And he says, oh, I'm, I'm, a, "I'm a professional killer." And someone says, "Oh, how's the dental with that?" So, um, <laughs> my thought was same thing. Like, okay, if you just out and out said you're a crazy person, and your introduction. Who's going to be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You're, I totally buy it. You're absolutely insane yet lucid when you talk about this stuff. Sure, that's believable. So that was the thought process there is that, yeah, of course, that's who the, that's who'd be in, the government would be indifferent. And that's, you know, part of the point. That's definitely clever to, to introduce the film that way. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes about like after we've had an introduction of maybe 10, 12 minutes of just you know, lining the pieces of, of who the characters are, not all of them, but some of them just get a little bit of background and then just have this building hospital scene where we watch some of the victims start to deteriorate a little bit. And then, and then the villain kind of makes a big, a big splash intro that um, is deliberately absurd so that nobody takes it seriously. Um, 
I'm not really giving anything away because, again, it's in the trailer. Right. And I think it's fair game if, if you, you watch the trailer and go, oh, right, I guess that's going to be in the movie. And, yeah, so uh, I didn't spoil the first 15 minutes, but maybe maybe you'll get a, a, a punchline repeated, but hopefully you still like it. <laughs> uh, the, so does this movie deliver anything that's unique to any other horror film? Uh, sincerity. Um. Uh, what I was concerned with was that while the movie gets silly at times and there's some animation that's way over the top at points um, and some of the, the deaths are pretty over the top and silly that I never winked at the camera that there was no breaking the fourth wall. That was really important because once you do that, you can't take anything seriously anymore because you've already acknowledged that you're watching a movie. So most horror films are very cynical and and I'm not suggesting that the movie is not cynical because it is, but that there's an element of these are real people and this is what they go through. And, um, I, I did actually care about them and I didn't, I was conscious of a couple of things that I guess differentiates it from other horror films is that none of the characters are stupid. Um, nobody behaves in a moronic fashion, which I think is important because, um, it's very easy when you, uh, when you're writing something as if you can't fa- find a way out of a situation. It's just you have someone behave like a moron and all of a sudden you have your, your loophole. You have found the way around the problem because you just have someone act like an idiot and you can either dispatch of them or not have them understand something that they should understand. So you can then explain it or that we can avoid, you know, resolving the issue, the, the, the what's called the idiot plot. Mm-hmm. And an idiot plot is something devised by Roger Ebert, which he described as basically um, an idiot plot is somewhere where something where uh, the movie would be over um, uh, if someone had a conversation with another person, but they spend the entire movie avoiding that conversation um, because they're too stupid to have it basically. And it requires the uh, actors to act like idiots in order to keep up the facade. And so I didn't want to do that. In in horror films, you have a lot of not just idiot plots, but you also have people behaving like idiots in order for someone to be killed in a way, or uh, in order to you know retain a secret or whatever the reason is. And I was conscious of not doing that. I, I really um, I didn't want to dumb anything down. Um, now, someone might watch the movie and think that it is indeed dumb, and I'm not going to say no. It's the smartest movie ever made. It's kind of a weird mix of of lowbrow and highbrow. And um, I hope people take it on that level in which it's they're both enjoying themselves and maybe they get something out of it in terms of, you know, maybe some of the heavy handed stuff that I have in the movie. Um, and, and then maybe also are amused at some of the satirical points and the political commentary and the social commentary. Um, I don't know if it'll be for everybody all the time because I don't think it could necessarily appeal to anybody all the time except maybe me. Um, and even I don't think it's perfect. Um, cause you can't, you know, uh, only someone in an idiot plot will lie to themselves enough to think that their movie is perfect, especially the first time out. Um, uh, a lot of the time you're just, uh, fixing problems. Uh, I think of it this way, like when you write a script, especially as overstuffed as my early drafts of the script were, like there's so much stuff going on. And even now, like in the, in the, in the edited version of the movie, like it's just, there's just things happening all the time. Um, I think of it this way. So the script is completely overstuffed and is very, is, is a very, very, very fat person. And then by the time you shoot it and you edit it, and then you're just kind of making sure that nobody notices the holes that have been created by all the things that you had to cut out or things you didn't quite get or scenes that don't quite work. Um, 
you you have a very 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 skinny person that you have bandaged up and you hope nobody notices the bandages you nobody sees the holes <laughs> so you start out very fat and you end up basically anorexic and you hope that nobody can tell the difference <laughs> i'm just picturing like somebody just like duct tape together right think of it like like seven um uh, the movie seven mm-hmm. has the very fat guy who who overeats himself yeah. to death and then there's later on a guy who who is uh starved to death and and i think of the script and which ironically of course is that that the actor playing the very fat guy is the screenwriter of the movie it's andrew kevin walker sitting in that chair in seven and then there's the guy who's very 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 skinny who who you know who uh, is not dead but you know coughs when they go they go find him and he's been sort of like deteriorating for about a year um i think of the the eventual movie as you know especially on a low budget that that's what it looks like is like you hope nobody notices or is grossed out unless you try to gross them out um so do you have any like types of deaths in the movie where somebody does something really stupid like hides in the closet where they can't escape nope don't do that i don't do that completely run into an alley that they can't escape? I mean, people run into an alley, but they're not. um, There's an alleyway that someone does get killed in, but they had already turned the corner and did not know that that was about to happen. Rooftop? Um, No deaths on a rooftop. People on rooftops looking down on dead people, though, certainly. Um. People but no, killed. none of the running up the stairs stuff. None of the, uh, none of the cliches or the stereotypes. I didn't do any of that. People getting killed while having sex. Nope. Uh, people are killed before having sex. Um, but it is a complete surprise, and it is not. It does not work the way that it would in a in a normal horror film at all. Hmm. Castration. Yes. I knew there had to be some castration in this movie. How did you know? Oh, I don't know. Just... Actually, you know, honestly, one of my favorite horror movies is I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah, that's one of my least favorite horror movies. Any really? version of it. Yeah. I love the original. Uh, I don't, I'm not a fan of any movie that requires that much rape in order to justify the violence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it totally, I, I, I understand your point of view. It, it is a disturbing and hard movie to watch. Oh, no, it's not even that. It's a very cynical move to make a rape-revenge movie. Um, hmm. Because it, it basically is uh, forcing you to sit through all the rape in order to justify why there's violence in the second half. So it's playing both sides while pretending that you're not going... You're, it's, it's pretending not to show the rape in any sexual fashion mm-hmm. while also shaming you for watching it. Hmm. Um, so it's disingenuous. Most rape revenge movies are very disingenuous in that way. And then you're supposed to enjoy the revenge and the violence because it's cathartic, but really it's a cheat because it, it basically sets you up to do that. It's a, it's totally manipulative in that way. And the original is so shoddily made most of the time. Oh, it's um, terribly made. Yeah. Um, I remember, uh, there's a, there's another movie by that same director, Mayor Zarki called don't mess with my sister. And, um, there's a scene near the beginning where uh, a guy is like, I think he's like stalking a woman or something. And he's on the, he's in an apartment building and he's like on the outside and he's watching her from the outside, like through her keyhole, not through her keyhole, but like through the, the, you know, if you have a knocker and you can look on the other side of it, 
like through the hole. Uh-huh. And he's on the outside of the door looking through that and he can somehow see her through it. And which is not how that works. Um, and then there's that scene in I Spit in Your Grave where uh, she cuts off the guy's dick and then um, locks him in from the outside of the bathroom. Yes. And I, and I, I was writing about both of that and Don't Mess With My Sister and I wrote, what does Mayor Zarki know about doors that I don't? <laughs> <laughs> because he's got two instances of things that do not exist in reality and make absolutely no sense and they're both about doors. <laughs> But I really, I mean, I, you know, the, the original is just sloppy work um, and really, you know, tries to have it both ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, his commentary is so disingenuous, too. As he's like talking about how uh, it was all about, you know, female empowerment and he, the story he heard. And he's, he's going on and on and he's thinking, uh, yeah, you just wanted to make a rape movie and you're justifying it because you just made like classless exploitation and you're not even particularly good at it. Um, like there's, there's no slickness to it and there's no, there's no, you know, nothing that distinguishes it other than it's so sloppy. Hmm. Um, See, I always sort of thought, you know, that was sort of a trademark of that time anyway, that era of movies. What, in terms of being sloppy? No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even like, like the early, um, I mean, I, I don't know as much as you, obviously, but even like, like the early Friday the 13th movies were kind of, I mean, but yeah, those are those are poorly made. I mean, that's that's. <laughs> but but yet they have like the like everybody in that cast became the star. No, it's just Kevin Bacon, pretty much, right? Oh, is there, is there someone else in there too? And that's just a coincidence that he became a star. There's nothing in that movie that shows like, oh, he's going to be a big deal. Um, he didn't get famous from that. He'd already been in Animal House by that point. Um, hmm. But um, and worked plenty, and you know, he 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 didn't really get all that famous until Footloose. I don't think. Um, a couple years later, maybe three or four years later. Um, well, uh, and, and to be fair, like when I've seen a slick version of a rape revenge movie, like um, the remake of, of uh, uh, I Spin Your Grave, that's actually worse in a way. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't watch that whole thing. <laughs> well, because it has this, con- this conceit that the rape is a little bit more subtle um, and they don't, they don't make you stare at it for 45 minutes, although it's there. And then somehow she becomes her own personal SWAT team in the second half. Um, even though we watch this tiny little person who can barely uh, walk, um, uh-huh. who who weighs maybe ninety pounds, suddenly you know uh, become her own black ops team um, in the second half of the movie, and you know it's just it's it's a, an absurd and cynical in a way that's not really that much fun because it's not like you're making a dumb action movie at that point. You're making you just excused you know forty five minutes of rape so in order to get to this point so. It's 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 a it's a better movie from a technical standpoint, but it's really a distinction without a difference. Yeah, I I couldn't even watch. I, I got through like maybe the first twenty minutes of it, and I gave up. I mean, it's relatively the same story, but yeah, you know, and it's a bit better acted. But that that's all. I, I remember years and years ago, uh, I was interviewing an actor who's in that movie, and he was on the set of the movie at the time. His name is Daniel Francesi. And he's in um, Mean Girls as well and Bully. We were talking about the movie and I asked him, I said, so um, what does a good version of I Spit in Her Grave look like? Because I can't even, I don't even know what it would look like. And then he, 
hemmed and hawed and he basically explained like how it wasn't as exploitative, but it was really well made and it was slick. And so it was like, he was basically positing it as both uh, enjoyable exploitation, but also like really, you know, well-made and like trying to have it both ways a little bit. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's part of what happens as an actor is that like you're on a project and you're like, you've, this is what you've told yourself that this is how you're going to get through the time. And like, you know, you signed on, you're like, okay, this isn't quite what I wanted, but you know, I'm going to have this part to it. And I've talked to plenty of actors where you realize that where they're in something that's, it's not working and they may know it subconsciously, but, but they have to tell themselves something. Otherwise like it'd be too depressing. I can see that happening. Um, trying to think how about last house on the left what the original or the remake definitely the original i mean i've seen both well no i mean because the the original last house on the left is already a remake um of uh the virgin spring the the uh ingmar Bremen movie um but the this stuff in the original the the um uh the cop stuff just kind of really kills the movie completely um, if you've seen the, you've seen the original, I'm saying, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? They stop and have this kind of like goofy cops, you know, you know, someone, someone gets away and they slam their hat on the ground. Like they were in an episode of Dukes of Hazzard or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it really like, you know, diverts the movie, which is mostly just slick exploitation, although a bit better acted than, than I spin your grave. I mean, I, I just, I, I have an issue with the rape revenge, uh, concept because again it's completely predicated on you're going to enjoy this rape you're going to enjoy this rape but don't enjoy this rape mm-hmm. um, and then and then oh well you're gonna there's going to be revenge violence because because of that rape like it's it's uh as I said it's like rubbing your nose in it in the weirdest way because it's not like uh, we made the decision to make the movie we're just the viewers right um so so. Which horror movie would you recommend? I mean, I guess it depends on on what you're looking for. I mean, so for instance, you know, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me is a horror comedy. And I would say, right. I mean, there's not a long list of horror comedies that I think work that well that are that are similar. You know, like Evil Dead 2, Reanimator, um, uh, Brain Dead, or otherwise known as Dead Alive, Peter Jackson movie. Oh, Dead Alive is a classic movie. Um, I love that one. Uh, then you have uh, Tucker, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, um, uh, Cabin in the Woods, um, and then you know you kind of run short after that. It's Shaun of the Dead, obviously. Um, the list isn't that long um, because it's kind of a difficult thing to balance, where you're 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 making something that's effectively working as horror, and then also mm-hmm. kind of making fun of it a little bit. So it's 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 very tricky. Um, I'm not sure I pulled it off, but, um, uh, you know, if, if you were looking for recommendations, I would say, you know, the, that eight or 10 movies I just named certainly works within that genre. But again, really de- it depends on what you're, what you're after. I mean, you know, the John Carpenter version of the thing or the fly, the Cronenberg the, the version or dead ringers or the brood, um, the original, I think they just remade that, didn't they? Or did they remake shivers. I can't remember which it is. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it runs the gamut. I mean, you know, you might like, what did I watch recently? Butt Boy um, has some very solid stuff in it. It's about a, that's kind of a horror comedy in a way. And it has some things that work and then some things that really don't. But uh-huh. that one's about a um, a guy who discovers that uh, he likes things up his butt. And um, 
he uh, uh, first like puts like a bar of soap up there and then um, he keeps escalating and escalating. And then uh, eventually he puts the dog up there. Oh no. And then uh, a child and then, (laughs) and the child disappears um, as, as does the dog. Um, And then uh, it becomes, uh, you know, we, we don't know what happens, but we see years later, like he's uh, in the, he's in AA and there's uh, people still looking for the child. And it's just about a guy who um, has, I guess, a super powered anus. In a sense. Wow. Uh, and uh, some of it's really funny and dark. And then mm-hmm. the stuff in the middle, when it becomes kind of a cop thriller, doesn't really work because the, the actor um, performing it, he's not, uh, he's a bit over the top. But the the guy who directed it, who's the star, is actually is actually quite good. I think it works a little bit better as a, a short film, though. The first fifteen minutes are really funny, uh, but of course, very dark because it's still about you know a guy who stuffs live things up his butt and they disappear. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid. I used to hear like these gerbil stories. Mm-hmm. Terrible. <laughs> Well, I th- I don't think Butt Boy isn't remotely realistic, but you know most <laughs> most horror movies are not realistic anyway. Yeah, it's almost as bad as like Human Centipede. I mean, you know, that's just a silly idea, um, and the, the movie is kind of like both boring and campy, and can't really make up its mind. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I seen it a lot like when it first came out, I, and I do remember it being like very slow moving. Yep. And then we don't really get to the actual, you know, titular element until nearly the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's like they thought of the concept and then they kind of stopped. I know he made some sequels, which I have not seen, but, um, you know, I, I understand he's just sort of obsessed with the idea and just like offending as many people as possible, which is, I guess, a way to go, but you got to be a little bit better about it. You can't, like, yeah. that can't be your only goal is to, Hey, I'm just going to hurt everybody's feelings or I'm going to offend everybody. And you, and you would think to yourself, okay. And, and, and why'd you do that? And in aid of what, what was your point? Um, you know, offending people is very much the, uh, as, as, as an entire stance is really much, very much the attitude of like someone who's like 21. And once <laughs> if you have enough time and money to make a movie, you're probably not 21 anymore. Oh, but like one of the things I've noticed, like I, I remember, like like for a time, there was like this super gory, over the top sexual type of movies, like Hostel and um, like that the, the newer version of Chainsaw Massacre and stuff like that. And like the next were made by like, some of them were made by Eli Roth, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it just sort of went away. Well, then they went to France. They make them in France for a while. I don't know who's doing the new ones. You see, the new ones can be made much cheaper. So they, what's called the new French extremity. They started making them like movies like Inside and Martyrs um, and, um, you know, uh, uh, High Tension or Haute Tension, but like it's known as High Tension in this country. Um, and those are very, very violent. They're much more violent than, um, than the Eli Roth stuff. Um, what's actually funny is I'm, I'm not a fan of any of the Eli Roth stuff except for the second Hostel, because <laughs> because it's like a parody of a Hostel movie. It's like it, an, it, it an is. analysis of it, and I thought, did somebody else make this? Why is this smart? Is that the one uh, at the end of where he used the kid's head as a soccer ball? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, 
But I, I mean, that stuff was pretty boilerplate. But um, what I was interested in is um, it was not that they redid the first movie, but they made it about women. It was more that the uh, that half the movie was about the guys who who participate, um, and then you see who's involved and why, and so it's an it's a deconstruction of the first film in a way, mm-hmm. and it's much better for that reason because otherwise it's kind of like aimless and repetitive. You know, frat boys get tortured, kind of you know, and you kind of yawn your way through it. If you're not affected by the violence, and I'm generally not, um, then yeah, it's it can be a little, you know, I think of a lot of that stuff as like, he thinks he's, you know, the term I guess he would use is edgelord. He's, he does that a lot where he just thinks he's like, you know, Ooh, uh, I went over the top. I'm offending you. And I'm like, hey, you're still making a mainstream movie. You're probably not going to go that far. Um, and for people who want that stuff, I'd say that the French version of martyrs, I know they remade it is really, that's going to, that pushes the boundaries a lot. And uh, that may, that may hit you just right. Um, I think it's brilliant, but I know it's not for everybody. Um, it uh, it uh, takes some of those elements and just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing until you are uncomfortable. Yes. And um, it's very, uh, very, very violent and uh, kind of making a point about that. Um, and you might think of it as, uh, you know, a bit, also a bit disingenuous and that like maybe they just made it in order to really up the torture as much as they could to a point of, you know, that very few people would accept it, but I think it works as both commentary and as an effective horror film. So if you're listening and you're, you know, 35 minutes into this and you're looking for uh, an interesting movie, I'd watch the original Martyrs, the remake. I would not, I would not do because I understand they have watered it down. I had no interest in seeing it anyway, but you're going to have to get used to subtitles one way or the other. Anyhow. Hmm. I'll have to check it out sometime when my wife is at home. She hates horror movies. Oh, my girlfriend likes horror movies, but whenever I describe Martyr, she's like, I, I can't do that. And I'm like, I totally understand. It's absolutely not for everybody. <laughs> um, how about like older, like, you know, like some of the classic, like Roger Corman movies? What do you think of those? I guess it depends. I mean, one of my favorites is not a Corman movie, but, it, but it's from that era. Like uh, it's a, an abominable Dr. Fibes. Oh yeah, um, Vincent Price. I was with Vincent Price. I used to have that yeah. on DVD, and it's kind of a precursor to Seven in a way because it's about um, uh, a doctor getting revenge on all the people who screwed up the his wife's surgery, mm-hmm. and he uses the uh, uh, you know plagues in the Bible uh, to kill them. And uh, nobody speaks in that movie for about the first fifteen minutes. Um, it's completely silent, and. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone says anything until Terry Thomas has some dialogue about yeah, minute 15 or so, but it's all very atmospheric. It's kind of a weird, it's sort of a horror comedy in a way. Um, it's, it's funny and it's very dark, but it's bleak. And uh, I think the ending works really well. Um, and uh, a good, excellent performance by, by uh, Vincent Price in that, where he kind of walks that line between camp and serious, where you take him seriously, but he's also just a bit, a bit silly. Yeah, I, I used to love Vincent Price. I really liked um, Mask of Red Death. Yeah, that's a good one. We saw, I saw that in a theater maybe about a year and a half ago. Really? Um, yeah, they played it near me, and uh, I didn't really think we'd be living in it, but I we kind of are. Um, <laughs> we we kind of had that happen about a month ago, um, where where the entire uh, in inside the right wing was infected at a uh, at a celebration of their own making and all, and they all got the deadly disease. Um, 
And uh, they followed it to the letter where you'd think, hey, didn't you guys read that poem by Edgar Allan Poe? Shouldn't you have known? <laughs> <laughs> or seen the movie or something? Hey, don't, don't do that because this is what happens. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I realize, uh, Gary, that you're not all that political, but that, that plot basically happened a month ago. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I never really even put that together, you know? Yeah. But you, do you know the event I'm talking about? They all went to... Uh, yeah. Yeah, no I, I know what you're talking about. Super, yeah, okay. Yes. Where, where uh, they were all celebrating the uh, Supreme Court judge selection and uh, they all got each other infected. Yeah, I mean, I, I do watch the stuff. I do follow it. I just, I just try not to have an opinion on it, you know. Um, Why? Uh, because, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to feel... One neither political party uh, represents what I sort of believe. Well, you know? when you only have two parties, nobody's going to represent what you believe. Anyway. And um, so, yeah, I just don't. So I watch it, you know, I'm like, it's, it's interesting the um, how emotional people get, you know, about things that I certainly don't really feel like they're important, but. Well, I mean, now you can kind of see why they are important, maybe, because we're all stuck here. Yeah, I, I guess. But, like, like say, for instance, um, guns. Right. Like, like to me, that's sort of like an unimportant issue, you know, because mm -hmm. people are going to get them anyway, just like drugs. Right. If first one's drugs, they're going to get drugs. So, so, so why is it even an issue? <laughs> Like, I don't uh, well, it's, it's complicated, but one of the reasons that guns are important is that you have lobbyists who, who want guns to be important. They use it as political wedge issues, the same way that abortion is used as political wedge issue when it really doesn't affect most people. Um, and there's no reason to prevent people from having it. Um, but uh, the reason that drugs are important um, in terms of criminalizing them is that there's a lot of money in it. Um, and if you know what the the prison industrial complexes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I understand like the war on drugs is just all about profit. Oh, yeah. But it's also about, you know, privatizing everything. And then you, 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 uh, I mean, I think I make jokes about it sometimes in my regular life is that the prison industrial complex is basically like the, the equivalent of farm to table, you know, um, underfunded school to, to uh, incarcerated prisoner back on the street, back to recidivism, you know, recidivism back to prison. Um, and the war on drugs is really about that. I mean, the Nixon administration admitted it was about that. Um, they said uh, many years after it was over, um, the guy who was primarily responsible for it, he said, look, we couldn't make being black or against the war illegal. So uh, the, so we figured we'd associate uh, black people with heroin and the hippies with, with weed. But uh, the heroin thing didn't stick, but that didn't mean they didn't prosecute everybody for you know, getting 10 years for having an ounce on them or something. And then, you know, essentially ruining their lives, making sure they can't get any better job than uh, working the fast food for the rest of their lives and then ruining their kids' lives as a result. And then you, you know, once you privatize the prisons, you incentivize, you know, the slave labor that comes with it. Yeah. I mean, you probably, you probably know all that stuff too. Yeah. I, I read, there was a, I forget what book it was. It was a Kurt Vonnegut book that, that really highlighted that. Well, I mean, the, the prison industrial, I mean, there's the similar yeah. with the military industrial complex, but yeah. you know, Eisenhower warned everybody about that and they didn't listen. Mm -hmm. 
but that's the same idea where, you know, um, we, we don't, the states that have absolutely no production of any kind, um, have, they have, they have no manufacturing. All they can do is make weapons. And so they get all the military contracts and they make all these weapons that don't have any purpose. And then when they have no purpose for these weapons that they've overpaid for, that have given all these, these local states that don't have any industry jobs, then those uh, weapons get given to local police who then think they're in the military and then want to use them on their constituents that they're supposed to be protecting. And now they're like, Hey, you know, I'm, I live in nowheresville, but I got a tank and I'm going to arrest people, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I found that interesting. You know, I'm going to arrest pimps in a tank. I find that interesting now that the, the police have things like tanks. <laughs> it's a recent movement. Yeah. But it's basically all this, this uh, weaponry that they had no use for in the military. And, and those, and those senators basically, you know, like, well, that, that's what pork is in a, in a, uh, in a bill, they add their own. Okay, let's let's get something for my constituents. Let's get jobs. Well, what are the jobs? It's making weapons. You know, you're you're in Alabama, right? Yeah. Are, are there uh, you know places that just build weapons in Alabama? I'm assuming there are military bases. Uh, I don't know, honestly. Like like where I live, there's a lot of aerospace mm-hmm. places around, but they mostly are building like you know. You know, stuff to go into space, not so right. much weapons. I mean, they might be making weapons that I don't know about. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, like, like Alabama, oddly enough, has its own thing. It's really there's a lot of cotton, a lot of lumber. Mm-hmm. So there's really no shortage seafood. Um, you know, so it, it's not like it's a, a state without resources to sell. But all I'm pointing out is um, that, A, it's important to vote in some sense, even if the parties aren't going to agree with you. Um, because if you only have two parties, of course, they're not going to agree with you because there's, you know, they're, 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 they're both sort of in the, you know, in the hands of the very wealthy who make up the rules. I mean, it's a complicated reason why. But basically, um, the reason that the government is constructed uh, as it is, especially in the Senate and the House, is the only people who can aff- so so in order to become like you know in with the the senators and you know the House of Representative members, they need uh, interns and they need people who can live in D.C. and be their interns, but they can't afford to pay them. Either not they'll either pay them nothing or not very much, and so who can afford to work those jobs except for people who are already wealthy, right? Like right. So the only people who can get those sort of internship jobs and work their way up into the government and start an intern and then work their way up to like, you know, a lobbyist or, you know, in the Senate eventually, you know, mm-hmm. as they've been glad handing the whole time are other rich people. And so yeah. their version of what reality is for the rest of the, the country is completely skewed because it's only rich people working their way up the ladder because nobody else can afford to live like that. Oh, absolutely. One of my pet peeves has always been college education. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, that my, in my opinion, college is our version of a caste system. No, oh, sure. Because only rich people can go to college and well, get good and jobs. Everybody can go to college. It's just what is that college worth to you? 
you know, it, it, it's a it's a caste system, sure, but it's also indentured servitude because it's basically like, hey, who wants two hundred thousand dollars worth of debt that you can't write off? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be required. I mean, when I was uh, in my twenties, I was temping, and I would uh, they wanted the fact that I had a degree, even though if the job was like stuff in envelopes, and the job was like, you know, hey, can you help clean this elevator? Well, what do I need a college? Why do I got to be in a suit and have a college degree to do that? <laughs> so what are you doing today? I'm going to name some real jobs ahead. You're sorting shoes. So why do I have to be business casual to short shoes? I'm going to be in the back room. I remember that one very specifically because I hadn't learned to manipulate the system yet. Hmm. Because um, this was probably like 2000, 2001, something like that. But I remember it because... Uh, I'm, I show up on time, I'm sorting shoes and this woman shows up and, um, she's, uh, barely put any effort. She's talking and she's talking and she's telling me this story that I don't know enough about at that point, but it was the night after Jennifer Lopez had been in a club with Puff Daddy and there'd been a shooting and it became like a national story. And she claimed to me that she'd been in the club during the shooting. Now I wasn't sure I believed her. I didn't believe much of what she said that day. Um, but what I watched was anytime like our supervisor would come in, she would make it look like she was like dictating what I should be doing, but without saying it. So like she was contributing to the shoe sorting. Uh-huh. Now she, as soon as the, the supervisor would leave the room, she would just sit down and start talking again. Um, <laughs> and I did all the work all day. Now working there was probably better than listening to her and actually paying any attention to it. But, uh-huh. um, I remember she showed up and and like she was wearing very casual clothing, like like she had been at the club the previous night. So she may have been, I don't know. But um, it struck me as like, so all of this lie about it's important that I have a degree and it's important that I look, you know, clean and presentable. If I'm just going to be in the back of, of some place and just sorting shoes, what's the difference? Yeah. So there there is a, a weird lie that everybody is told. One of my uh, things I'm working on now is about... Uh, script is 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 about how um, in the future your college degree is only going to allow you to work in certain places. It's going to be a lot of overeducated places, people working in menial jobs, because um, you know you're going to have this fancy schmancy degree and nobody's going to care, right? Because uh, because it, it doesn't mean anything. So you you know you essentially have to get a high paying job that is mindless in order to pay back your student loan. <laughs> uh, the script gets into more than that. It's not just about that, but that's an element right. of it. Interesting. Yeah, I, I I used to always just lie. I used to say I had a degree when I didn't to get now, jobs. Did, did it help you? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely got more jobs lying about having a degree or certification or whatever. Yeah, they never asked to look for it, certainly. You never, yeah, yeah, nobody I've never had to show my college degree anywhere. Exactly. So I would just put down and like on my, I'll just make up a fake, re, a fake resume with some fake experience and a fake degree, and get a job. It'll only get you so far though. I mean, one of the things that college does is um, helps you socialize in a particular way amongst other people who also have to fake being educated. Mm-hmm. So you may have limitations and college is also about networking. So, um, you can you can you work your way up to a certain point in any industry, honestly, uh, and then you're going to be limited by who you know. Yeah. Um, 
the film industry is no different, but um, any job is really okay. You know, they'll let me get up to, you know, 60% of the way to the top. But at the, at, at that point, it's who was I nice to whose ass did I kiss? Mm-hmm. Who am I related to at that point? So there are always limitations. I mean, I think of it oh, this yeah. way when I was in high school, I was a, a production assistant and I'd work on commercials and, um, uh, you know, promo videos and stuff, uh, magazine shoots, all, all sorts of things, did it for a couple of years. And I worked for this, this TV company. And then every time, every so often they would loan me out to work on movie sets. So I worked on some big movies, but only only for a couple of days. And I'm not sure how legal it was, but, um, and I wasn't paid, but it was really just like, Hey, could you want to be on the set of this movie? I'm like, sure. Um, so I can tell you all sorts of continuity errors in Die Hard with a Vengeance because I was there, um, but uh, only for a couple of days. And um, But what I knew was once I graduated, I could have continued in that vein and just worked as a production assistant, worked in my way up to various levels of crew. And then 20 years later, you know, I would have been, you know, an assistant camera person working on sets all the time. Uh, I never would have made a movie that way. And you never would have put away enough money to do it and you wouldn't have had the energy and you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have the clout. You don't work your way up from production assistant to director anymore. I had to do that on my own. And I would have had to know the right people to, to, to skip all the, you know, the honest way that you do it. Cause I don't really, I've never really believed that America is a meritocracy and uh, you know, working in certain industries kind of reveal that anytime you work for like a family business, you it's kind of revealed um, <laughs> and anytime, you know, you learn about anything, yeah. it's like, Oh, yeah, right. Nepotism. This has nothing to do with any, how good anybody is at anything. It's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's who they knew, who they, uh, whose ass they kissed all this. It's all the same stuff that never really stops. And it doesn't have to do with like, cause I grew up around really wealthy people. I went to school with a lot of really wealthy people and children of wealthy people. And it's, it's the same networking thing. And I, I don't have that it's not that I don't have that skill. I don't know how to be that disingenuous. I don't know how to um, kiss ass and feel okay with it. You know? Yes. That's a particular skill that I know how to do, but I would hate myself to do. Mm -hmm. do Um, I know how to be around those people, but I have a hard time not telling them what I think. (laughs) And, and, and not that um, like, they would necessarily want to be around me, but because I've always kind of been designed that way, I've always been very unpopular, but it's never bothered me. So, um, uh, and I have the antagonistic instinct anyway, but I mean, I could just say that, that being around wealthy people, they're not smarter. They're not, um, you know, more fashionable. It's, 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 they're exactly the same. They're just, uh, often lack empathy. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, uh, they don't really believe, um, they, they, you know, they believe that they earn what, what they have when they're usually given it. Um, and that never, you know, that no self-awareness is coming to them. So don't, don't look for it to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I grew up the same way. I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey and, you know, it was, it was very sort of pretentious and, um, and, and I learned like, like these people that, that, that say they're, they're, they're smart. Um, very few of them actually are, or they might be smart in one specific area or really well practiced or whatever. But when it comes to everything else, they're not, you know, they're just regular people. So when you graduated high school, what happened? 
Oh, I went into ticket scalping. You know that story. <laughs> well, yeah, I did, but but I didn't know how long it went. Um, well, I, I, I was doing that for a while. Um, how long was it? And during, I don't know, a year. Okay. So you and, graduated high school and you went right into scalping. Yeah, and I was also doing it while I was in high school too. Did you have a bachelor's in scalping? Yeah, yeah, I was very good at it. I, I learned how to sleep on the sidewalk and, you know. I knew to buy, you know, a couple box of donuts for people and make friends and bring beer, weed, you know, all the important things. Right. You know, because it's just it's just a party, really, right. and a way to make money. Um, and I was also playing in a band, too. Okay. So you know, I did that, and uh, you know, I was really hoping to be a successful musician, but eventually the struggle got to me, and I chickened out. And I kind of kicked myself for doing that, you know. I, I, I reached this really low point where I, I was hanging out at the soup kitchen in Trenton and, you know, picking up scrap metal for money and, you know, living in a, in a house with boarded up windows. It was just crazy, you know. What happened? Did the band fall apart or something? Oh, yeah. I, I could never really keep the band together. There's just too many drugs and alcohol and Plus, I really wasn't that talented, you know. I was just don't let that stop you. Oh, it it doesn't stop me at all now. <laughs> but but I had reached his low, so I went to my parents. I said, "Look, you know, this isn't working. I think I want to go to college." So my parents were like, "Okay, that's great. That's good news. We'll let you. Uh, we'll pay for you to go to community college." You know. So I started going to community college for about. 15 years and I got about halfway through a computer networking certification and this is where I started lying on my resume you know because because I found I saw an ad for uh, you know a job in computer networking so I lied and said I had the certification and I got the job and, and that's what I did for a long time it's just kind of worked in communications so you never got the degree no. Well, how did, no. you said 15 years, which I assume was an exaggeration. How long? No, no, 15 years part-time, five majors. Okay. How much of that did your parents pay for? All of it. Uh, well, I guess community college is not like brutally expensive. No, local. not at all. So you did you live with them the whole time? No, no. I, in fact, none of it, actually. I, I kind of left home, you know, right after high school. Okay, so you lived in Princeton taking community college classes for 15 years? No, no, I lived in Trenton. Oh, okay, in Trenton, okay. Trent, Trenton's close to Princeton. Right. But, uh, but you know, it's the hood. Right. No, I've been to Trenton. Yeah. I, uh, I, did, I did some medical testing in Trenton. Really? Yeah, back in 1999, I think. Yeah, I was living there in 99. Uh, yeah, it was a, a weird experience where uh, summer in 99, I was doing all sorts of weird things. I was in the sort of between my junior and senior year at college and I was temping. I did medical testing. I did sperm donation. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh here, here's a funny thing. Do you know where the sperm donation in New York city is? No, at least at the time, what no. would be the funniest place to have the sperm donation? We build no. Times square. What building would be the funniest? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the name of the buildings. The Empire State Building. <laughs> really? 
You know, the thing that looks like yeah. a giant penis. Yeah, I know what it is. <laughs> so I go in and it was the 78th floor. And you do, you do, you do, uh, you know, you go through the various processes. And the first time I went in, I'm like, this is pretty funny. And they're like, why? I mean, you know what this building looks like, right? They're like, yeah, you're in the Empire State Building. I'm like, no, I know. But, you know. <laughs> and no, nope, sense of humor about it. Nothing. But, uh, yeah, I did medical testing in 99. Um, and uh, we, what you did was um, you'd go in and um, uh, you'd have to, at least the test that I was part of, you would have to go in for a couple of days and then come back like a week or so later. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, they were testing to see how long this like heart medicine would stay in your body. And, um, you know, there were all, all these various tests that they would give you to, you know, they wouldn't take a lot of blood. They would just take blood a lot of times. Uh-huh. So they'd, they'd prick your arm quite a bit. And then you have to go back like a week later. Um, and it was very strange. And you have to like hold water in your system for a long time to see how long, you know, and not pee. That kind of sucked. But, um, it was strange cause it was like, kind of like, uh, people who were very driftery, like they weren't homeless, but it was very much like they're, they're transient kind of people. And I was much younger and whiter than everybody there. Um, <laughs> and, um, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to be doing. What would be funny is that they had all sorts of movies that you could watch there on VHS. But since you had to go to the bathroom every like, you know, half hour or 45 minutes, you never got into anything. So <laughs> it was pointless. So I saw lots of movies sort of in pieces while I was there. Cause you just had to kill time. Yeah. Uh, Cause whenever you talk to anybody, you'd be like, boy, I regret this. Um, Cause you'd have roommates. And then you talk to people who talk about like all their like, Oh, I'm going to go do this. And you're like, I don't really believe anything you say. <laughs> and, and, you know, you wouldn't say that of course. But um, I remember there was a, uh, a guy whose name was uh, Damien. And he said, my, my color is purple. So he dre- he's like, oh, that's what I wear. And he was, he was, he was a, a, a stripper, like a male stripper. And he would say, uh, I'm, a, I'm a jack of all trades and a master of nothing. And he would say it all the time. And he thought it was very clever. Um, but he was easier to deal with than, than most the other people there who had certain kind of uh, chips on their shoulder and grudges. And mm-hmm. it was very ter- the whole thing was very territorial and everybody was like, you know, worried about being thrown out of the study or whatever, or like trying to manipulate the situation or, you know, oh, I'm not healthy enough. I'm gonna, like, not going to get my money, you know, all this sort of stuff. But yeah, I had to go back to Trenton from New York City. Um, I think we went twice in, in inside a week. But I remember the, the, uh, intestinal pain that I had on the way home because I had to hold the, hold the water in my system for so long. Um, but yeah, so that was my, I think my experience in Trenton. So uh, maybe, maybe you did that too. No, I didn't do that. I didn't do like, I knew they had medical testing down there, but I never did it, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I, I the t-shirt I, in my drawer. It's a green t-shirt with like a Bunsen burner on it. I mean, I would do things like steal guardrails and take them to the scrap metal place and shit like that. Well, while money. you were doing, while you were getting your, your, uh, non-degree. Mm, no, this was like, like right before, you know, like, like that was the low. I was doing guardrails and hanging out at the soup kitchen. And, and then like, I did that for about six months. I said, you know what? 
I give up. I give up on this whole music thing, and, and, and I'm just going to get a job and go to college. And that's what I did. You know, I started working in machine shops and stuff like that and going to college. And eventually I lied about a certification and got a real job. Sorry, my dog is barking. I'm sure I'm assuming the computer is picking that up. It's fine. My girlfriend is uh, calming him down right now. Um, my dog does that too. So, well, I'm in a quiet room separate from him, but he's looking out the window. about <laughs> 40, I've got the door closed, but he's still pretty loud. What kind of dog? He's a wire-haired mini dachshund. He's 12 years old. His cool. name is Louis. I have a French bulldog. He's a mess. How so? Oh, we rescued him from a breeder. and uh, Wait, you rescued from a breeder? I thought you well, just adopted well, from a breeder. Well, kind of rescued. I mean, he's just, this place was disgusting where he, he okay. was kept. He was used as a stud. And they were okay. trying to get out of the business and giving him away because nobody would take him anyway because he was too old. Mm-hmm. So we took him and, you know, he ended up having heartworms. It's all kinds of health issues. He was never socialized. He wasn't used to people. Mm -hmm. So it's been a real rough ride for him. But uh, he's turning out now to be a pretty good dog. I mean, at least we're giving him a good life. That's what really matters to me more than anything else is that, you know, he went from having a shitty life to a pretty good life. Oh, my dog's been spoiled the entire time, so I have no, <laughs> I have no, we adopted a, you know, we rescued him for it. Nope. Got him, got him from a breeder, you know, 10 weeks old, met him at two weeks, picked him out. Um, he's been uh, spoiled the entire time, his entire life. Um, he's got, he's got uh, ramps up to the bed. He's got stairs up to the couch. He's got another ramp uh, up to his chair that he looks out the window, every apartment I've ever lived in where he's, uh, you know, been around, he gets his own room basically. So mm-hmm. even though he's a small dog, that's funny. My wife wants me to spoiled. make steps for my dog to get on the couch. Mm-hmm. You don't have know. to make steps. They're 12 bucks. Yeah. Oh, she, she thinks I can make steps for some reason. I know, but $12 is not, <laughs> I know. I've explained to her that it would probably cost me more money to buy a saw. Yeah, it would. <laughs> I mean, depending on the weight of the dog, how big is the dog? Um, I guess he's probably about 30 pounds. Yeah, okay, then you're fine because our, our dog is 20. And uh, yeah, just go to, you know, uh, a CVS or a Rite Aid or a whatever the equivalent out is in Alabama, whatever your version is. I'm sure it's slightly different, right? CVS. Yeah, okay, so you have that. And they sell those in the pet area where you just – you know, put together the stairs. The last time I bought one was years ago, but it was $12. And I have three of them because when they start to break down, which isn't that often, you know, it's only 12 bucks. It doesn't doesn't hurt you. Um, Or don't even go there. I guarantee you get it online at any of the places you you want to wear food or whatever. It's really not pricey at all. It's very easy to put together. And and you could pretend you made it. You could just write your name on it and say, I made this. (laughs) My cat weighs 20 pounds. So the cat will use it too. There. Oh, the cat. The cat can get up, man. He, he can move around for a fat cat. Um. So when does this movie come out again? It comes. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> nice pivot. 
That's a terrible pivot. Oh, I know. I was being sarcastic. <laughs> it uh, comes out on Friday, uh, October 23rd. Um, go to lemley.com. That's L-A-E-M-M-L-E.com. Uh, if you're hearing this long after that, uh, go to waitwaitdon'tkillme.com. And uh, it'll be, I'll always have up there where you can find the movie. There's also like the trailer and TV spots worth, well, they're not, t- not an airing on TV, but uh, you know, 30 second spots that are, that are advertised and, and then, you know, information interviews uh, that I've done both newspaper, TV, uh, tons and tons of podcasts. Um, so I can say Gary that uh, uh, while this is one of the few that I've been on more than once, I've been on a lot of podcasts once. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, if you got, if you release this on Friday, I think, uh, between, uh, Thursday and Friday, I'll have 10 episodes of different shows come out. Wow. Yeah. I'll put it out on Friday. Um, so is this the worst podcast but, you've ever been on? Oh no, not even close. Really? No. I mean, bottom five. Sure. But no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I made it to the bottom five. Then. I mean, you gotta be somewhere, right? Yeah. No, there are there are far worse ones. Um, uh, I don't know how to describe it without getting anybody in trouble, though. Yeah, I don't wait to tell me who they are. I mean, I <laughs> well, even if I if I start I, describing it, people who book your them. people who book your show will mm-hmm. get upset. Okay, well, not. I mean, I mostly book my own show. The one, the stuff that I get from publicists, to me, is kind of like filler stuff. You okay. know, I, I don't really, but, but my really good interviews, I get them myself. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, I know there's a publicist that was involved in the booking of the show that I was on on Monday. And yes. I'm not talking about that publicist. It's a different one who books mm-hmm. more off kilter guests. And that was clearly the worst show I'd ever been on, but I kind of knew it would be. And I thought of it as, um, I listened to a couple episodes beforehand and I'm like, this is really terrible. Um, and uh, again, I can't get into any description, not just of the show, but any detail I give you would give it away. Right. Um, um, but um, the the host is a, a very poor listener, and uh, um, uh, oh, I don't know how to do this without giving away. But I'll just say that person is a very poor listener and does not know how to pronounce words most of the time. Um, so it can get very awkward and they ask uh, quite terrible questions, but I kind of knew that going in. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's other very distracting elements in the show when someone listens to it, although not when you're, um, actually being interviewed, but, uh, that are added later. Uh, maybe that'll give away too much, but you figure it out. Um, and yeah, so I thought of it as, okay, no interview will get worse than this. Um, <laughs> because, this person's going to ask such off kilter questions and I'm going to figure out how to navigate. So nothing, you know, it'll be kind of like, you know, having a uh, chemotherapy before you have cancer. Um, so, you know, this is going to be terrible and I'm going to, you know, but I'm not going to have all the horrible side effects cause it's just a 45 minute interview. It's fine. Um, and so that's how I thought of it. It was like, okay, I'll just get through it. And then it, indeed it was bad. Um, <laughs> But I, I think I did an okay job getting around the questions. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that that's it's really not close, which is the worst because it was that one. Wow. Um, so you know, you don't have to take stock. You're not the worst show I've ever been on. That's fine. Yeah. You know, the truth is, I don't even really listen to other podcasts. 
I mean, there might be a couple that I'll listen to because the podcasters are friends of mine, mm-hmm. you know, because I've made, I've made some friends while doing this, mm-hmm. but I really don't listen to too many. And, uh, and if some of them that I have listened to, I, you know, I, I hear things and, and like a lot of times I learn what not to do, I think, more than what I learn what to do. Well, what have you learned to do? Or what would you learn not to do? Well, one, I've learned not to try to uh, be somebody else other than me, you know? Right. Like, I know I can't, I'm not a super energetic person. So if I jump on a podcast and I'm trying to sound energetic and trying to sound witty and smart and all that kind of stuff, it's not going to work because that's not who I am, you know? So I've really kind of learned just to be myself, you mm-hmm. know? And, and, you know, I'm, I'm just me. I'm just kind of laid back. I'm not perfect at all. There's a lot I don't know. And, and I just kind of go with it. Um, but when I hear people, people with all kinds of shtick and all that kind of crap, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, this is, just, this is just worse. So when we were doing an interview on Monday uh, with Liz Priestley, um, I did almost all the talking. You brought me on. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> so you didn't have to do anything. And every so often, I guess I would say funny things because you would laugh. But, um, but there was no, like, I didn't know. It was a weird experience because I'm like, this isn't really my show. Should I be doing this much talking? <laughs> I borrowed you for an episode, man. <laughs> you did. I mean, I was, I was like, you know, guest hosting. All right, that's fine. And I'll, I'll, I'll contribute. But I didn't think, uh, it's just me talking to Liz. For two it, hours. It, was, it was a really good conversation. You two were perfect together because you had so much in common and so many uh, similar experiences. And there so, were many stories that both of us wanted to tell we knew we couldn't. Yeah. A lot of stories that you couldn't tell, though. Yeah. Apparently, Philadelphia is a very secretive place. Uh, it's not that it's secretive. It's that it's very incestuous and that everybody knows each other because it's small especially in the film and theater community. So it would be very easy for one of us to tell a story and get back to one of those people and they would get very upset and there would be pushback. Even if everything we said was true, it doesn't make any difference. All right. So So, you got to protect your career. I didn't think of it. It's not, I I didn't tell the story because it was, so there's one story that I wanted to tell, but the reason I didn't tell it is because I feared that Liz knew that person. Right. Um, and I've told that story on another show many years ago, but a shorter version um, because more, more happened after it that is, that is much, much worse. Like it's an already awful story by the Philadelphia film community. Um, and then it got piled on and it's just much, much worse. And my fear was that, and I did talk to Liz afterwards um, uh, over Facebook. And I said, do you know, like, and I said, I didn't say who the person was. I said this company and she said, no, I don't know anybody there. So I might've been able to tell the story, but it's, if I told the story on your show, you'd be probably appalled by it. There's nothing offensive in it, but it's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's so filled with the delusion that she and I discussed that it is, it is sort of, if, if uh, that thing I was describing earlier is clearly the worst podcast I've ever been in, this would be the most delusion I've ever been around at this level. <laughs> most people lying to themselves all at the same time. Um, and that's a weird experience because there's nobody, I remember it happened. 
I wonder, can I tell this story? Can, I can tell the story because she said she wouldn't she know and she's not here. She's never going to hear this. I'll tell the story. Um, okay. So this would have been, um, and if you guys didn't hear the episode, and I'm assuming most of you haven't, especially an hour and 15 minutes into this one, or what, however, I know you got to add some like intro and you got to add some ad at the beginning. So maybe it's a little later in the episode, right? Um, no commercials. Okay. Um, but I mean, at the beginning, don't you have an ad? I mean, I have an intro and an outro, but no ads. Okay. All right. Um, so uh, this is, uh, say, 20, maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't say when it was, but we'll say it was the first time I tried to make the movie in Philadelphia. And uh, someone helps me uh, with a script uh, reading. This is before I've tried to get financing, and I'm just trying to cast and trying to figure things out and try to shorten the script. So we read the first draft. And because the person who set it up, uh, her friend is, is hosting a series of short films. So I want to be helpful. So I go because I want to be supportive. And he's um, hosting these short films and they're all at a bar downtown in Philadelphia. And um, yeah, I, I'll tell the whole thing. I'm just, I'm just like, eh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to offend anybody because I'm not going to name anybody. No. So it's okay. Um, and, and so I go to this, uh, these series of shorts. Now, as, as, as a film critic, I have got a very high tolerance for bad films. So I can sit there a lot. Um, and the first short is uh, by the guy hosting the thing who I'm trying to be supportive of. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a, a vanity piece uh, that's really just an excuse for him to have sex with his girlfriend on camera. And then there's sort of like a legal thriller somewhere in there as well. It doesn't make a lot of sense and it's mostly incoherent. And there's a scene in the movie where um, uh, it takes place in a boardroom and some people are yelling at each other and someone leaves the room and slams the door of the boardroom and the camera shook. <laughs> and after the, sh- the, the, the uh, short was over, he had a Q&A and I waited until the Q&A was over and I walked up to him and I said, hey, um, you might want to change the take there because the camera shook. Do you have a different take where it doesn't shake? And he goes, yeah, I don't really like the color correction in that scene. I said, uh, no, th- th- I'm sure the color correction was fine, but um, really it's just that the, the camera shook and um, you know, maybe it should be a different take where that doesn't happen because you know, the, the reality is broken. He's like, yeah, I got to talk to the editor about the color correction in that scene. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm not getting through to him. <laughs> Too much delusion. <laughs> so um, uh, the last short is like 45 minutes long and it's punishingly bad. Um, and it's basically about absent black fathers in a similar way, uh, not, not, you know, at the level of quality, like Liz's, uh, the director of Liz's movie, Concrete Cowboy, that's about right. absent black fathers and the short film by the same director is also about absent black So this is about absent black fathers um, in Philadelphia. And, um, but it's, you know, the first scene is uh, so poorly lit that you can't even tell what's going on at all. And um, it's, it's ugly. It's something to do with masks and people looking in a mirror in a bathroom. And I can't even tell what's going on. And it goes on for another 10 minutes. And I just leave the room. It's so bad. I'm just embarrassed. And I come back and it's still going on. I'm like, I can't believe how long this is. And I, and I end up leaving a different, I think I end up leaving three times and coming back in, in a 45 minute short. Because I just can't get through it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I saw, and maybe it happens more often because I only saw it, you know, bits and pieces of it. There were at least three different scenes where like a 12 year old black kid would be walking down the street, pointing at every black male that he saw and going, he's my father. 
He's my father. He's my father. Um, and this, you know, continued. And, and by the time it happened a third time, when I, when I came back in, I was sitting at the <laughs> bar and this, I, he's my father. He's my father. And there was a black woman sitting at the bar next to me. And I whispered to her, this is the worst episode of Jerry, of, uh, of Maury that I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> and she laughs at what I said. And then 30 seconds later, she's on the screen. Um, so I'm like, Oh no, I am surrounded by people in this movie, aren't I? So the movie ends and it's terrible and it's incoherent and it was incoherent from the start. So I'm not feeling like I missed anything, but I don't, I don't care. And you know, whatever. And big applause. Everyone's really into it. And, um, the movie is so amateurish that I'm expecting like a, you know, a a high school kid to stand up and go, yeah, I made this movie. And there is a 55 year old black man who supposedly has like 20 years in the industry. And one of his jobs is like teaching young black and Hispanic kids how to make movies. Um, he teaches at a, a, not a school, but like, you know, uh, sort of a training facility of sorts. Uh Um, and the, he stands up on stage and the first thing he says, and he's not saying it to be funny. He says, I'm sorry. It's so hard to see. It's really hard to like black people. <laughs> he was serious. He was absolutely serious. <laughs> and I am sitting there appalled at this and nobody has any reaction at all. Um, and then he's talking about like how they had 14 weeks to shoot this. And I'm like, Oh my God, you had 14 weeks. Do you know how long that is? I didn't say this out loud, but I'm just thinking this. Um, it's so like, cause there's just not one usable shot in the whole thing. Um, and you know, and he teaches classes and I don't, you know, and, uh, um, so I end up talking to someone in the back because everybody else in the crowd is clearly like involved in the movie. Cause they're talking about how it's going to go to festivals and how great it is. And then one person talking about the catering and how great the food was on set. And cause that's one of the mothers there is involved in making the food, you know, that kind of thing. And you're like, Oh God, we're not going to get any, you know, there's no objectivity here. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and I end up talking to this guy in the back who's a, another black guy and I'm talking to him and he's, he was like, I was like, you heard what he said, right? He's like, yeah, it was infuriating. <laughs> I'm like, I know it wasn't just me. And I'm like, I, I'm a white guy. I can't, I can't complain about this, but you know, we can have this conversation. He and I became friendly for a little bit. And um, he was like completely appalled by like, a, how bad it was, but be the, just that justification. So a couple <laughs> weeks later, I go to a meet and greet event and it's for this thing for like film and video in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And they were sponsoring the event, the where this these shorts played. And one of the things that happened, actually, uh, 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 another critic that I knew was there. Um, I knew him pretty well. He and I had been pretty friendly. And he ended up giving me a ride home. And he he and I were talking. I'm like, why did this guy, this filmmaker, say that? He's like, oh, it wasn't that bad. I'm like, okay, what's the good version of this? <laughs> Please tell me what he meant then. Because you and I agree that he was not kidding, right? You know, he wasn't kidding. He just meant, and, and I was like, and the, the justification was uh, not satisfying. <laughs> but anyway, so a couple of weeks later, I, uh, uh, I go to one of these events, these meet and greet events. And, you know, mostly they don't accomplish anything. You just get a lot of pretenders and posers and stuff. And I thought it may be helpful to meet potential crew or investors or whatever, but it, it never worked out. And um, the woman who'd run the event was there and I see her, she goes outside to have a cigarette 
or to hang out with one of her friends having a cigarette or something like that. And, Cause it's taking place at like a restaurant bar and she's sitting next to her, she's sitting next to her friend who's smoking. And I said, I can't stop thinking about that event. And she's like, why? He's like, well, and I say, you know, that whole, like, you know, it's really hard to like black people. And then her friend who's next to, next to her says, but it is really hard to like black people. And she said, I, I should know I'm a photographer. I'm like, it's not hard to like black people. It's different to like black people. Um, it has nothing to do with, you know, difficulty. It's not, you, you, may, you might need more light. You might need a different light, but it doesn't have anything to do with like, oh, that's why we can't have black people and whatever. And, uh-huh. and she said, well, why are you disturbed by that? And I said, because he's scapegoating his own race for his inability to make a movie. He's basically saying, I don't know what to do. And you know why, why I don't know what to do? Because the people in this movie are black. And it was really distressing. And she's like, well, it, and I said, I just can't stop thinking about like how defeatist and just how distressing that was. She's like, well, stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right. And I walked away and I never went back and I never talked to them again. So that's the version I've told on the radio before many years ago. But that story continued because years later, I'm having a meeting with a potential investor. And uh, he and I are talking and I tell him that story. And he's like, oh, I know that guy. He's like, I said, you do? And I'm talking to this guy who's also black, um, who's a small role in my film. And he's like, yeah, no, I, I know that guy. Uh, my girlfriend and I took a class at, the, at this you know, thing. And this guy I'm talking to is like in his 40s or 50s or something like that. I said, you took a class? He said, yeah, it was the worst class I ever took with this particular guy, <laughs> this hard to light black people guy. And I said, so what was the class in? And he goes, lighting. It's <laughs> hysterical. But I was—I didn't want to tell that story because I was concerned Liz might know that guy. So <laughs> this is a small world. It is. Yeah. <laughs> but that is a—that's a lot of self-delusion, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah, this and it was, it was one of the reasons that I really didn't want to make the movie in Philadelphia, but I ended up doing it for different reasons. It was just like, if this is the thing that people, this, and, and I experienced it more afterwards too, where I would see people like who would just lie to themselves so much about what they could and could not do, um, what their skill level was. I, I just could not understand it. There's just no ability to either take criticism or have any uh, self-awareness. It, it's, it's very odd. That is, you know, I, I, people are just delusional. <laughs> right. But tons and tons of these movies that, so, so remember uh, when we were uh, talking on Monday, Liz and I were talking about how there was like mm-hmm. three projects that get made like in a year or two period in Philadelphia. Yeah. Well, it's not that there aren't more movies made. It's just that you never hear them. They never go anywhere and they're made like by all these different people. And I know a lot of those people. Uh, and they're the same people that kind of overlap with the same crowd that, that helped me with the script um, reading. And uh, most of them are really bad and they're badly acted and they're not going anywhere. And I'm like, who's financing this? What's this about? Like these movies stink and nobody can say anything because these are perfectly nice people. Um, but how, you know, we're talking like 30, 40 movies a year that they're, they're not even getting released. I don't even know what the point is. Yeah, it it doesn't make sense. No. And I don't want to look into who's financing them because I'm afraid what I'll find out. Yeah, it almost Um, sounds like money laundering. That's why I don't want to look into it. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's like those pizza places that have no business. Yeah. No, I, I saw that stuff when, uh, when I was in New York. I remember I had a temp job. And there's an Italian restaurant across the street from the, uh, do you, know, you know what St. John the Divine is on 110th yeah. Street? Mm-hmm. So I was working as a temp job at St. John the Divine. And I went across the street to this Italian restaurant. And uh, it was completely empty. And that's a very high rent area, like really high rent. And it was completely empty at, at like 12 o'clock during the week. And the food was horrible. <laughs> um, and the, the staff was rude. And it was, as I said, completely empty. And there was this whole downstairs area that you weren't allowed in that had nothing to do with it. It wasn't the kitchen. It mm-hmm. wasn't where they stored things because there were like pictures all the way down the wall, like, you know, of people, like famous people who'd been there or what, all that sort of thing. And you're like, oh, right, mob, got it. Because <laughs> the restaurant's clearly not doing anything, anyone in favors here. Just a money funnel. Yep. So I don't, I don't know. I guess that's a good story because you, you, you were amused by it, but it's pretty sad in a way. It's, it's, it is kind of funny. Like, like that this guy is, is teaching lighting, like that punchline at the end of the story is just, it, 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 it's so outrageous. Yeah. and the idea of this movie of some kid walking around pointing at people going, that's my father, that's my yeah. father. You know, it's, the, I don't know. And then the comment about not being able to like people are for lighting. It's, and there's me trying to have a sensible conversation that's going nowhere. So. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I don't know. It, <laughs> it's, it's bizarre to say the least. Yeah. Very bizarre and interesting, and an, my my listeners are going to love that story. Okay, that that story almost falls into the realm of the paranormal, <laughs> sure, <laughs> or the supernatural. <laughs> well, imagine you were there, and how weird that would be, and 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 also imagine how bad something has to be for me to leave it three times in forty five minutes. <laughs> Well, I have been in situations where I've had to leave quite a bit because you know, whatever was happening was so bad, whether it was a party or, um, you know, I, I, when I was playing music, I would go to some open mics. And and, and like even like there, like I, I saw like that kind of thing where like people took themselves so seriously and they were so bad, you know. It's just like, whew, killing me. You know, well, it's it, also because what happens when they take themselves that seriously is that they can't, they don't listen to anybody else. Yeah. And it makes it even worse. Yeah. You know, like, at least me, like, I know I'm bad. <laughs> I just well, don't care. It's just, it's just like piling on the insecurities. Like, so you put this out here, but you don't want to hear any criticism, but you know secretly that there's something wrong with it, which is why you don't want to hear any criticism. Yeah. It's, it's just being dishonest to yourself and. Right. And to people you work with because with music, there's not as many people involved, but with a movie, there's like, you know, a minimum of 50 people involved. Well, my movie, a couple hundred. And yeah. if I continuously lied to myself about what it was, I mean, I don't know what the point would be. Yeah, you're, you're doing a disservice to everybody. Right. You know, and, and, and potentially messing up other people's careers, too. Cor- correct, yeah. And because it means you got, it, it's, uh, 
you know, I talk about this sometimes when I talk to other people, like, look, you can't teach good judgment. Um, that's the one thing that can't, that no one can get across is like how you can have judgment of other people and how you, how you judge yourself and your accomplishments and whatever. And you, you, you can't teach the honesty and that, that sort of level of self-awareness. You either have it or you don't. Um, and it doesn't mean that if you have it, that you're constantly insecure because, um, I have, I think decent judgment, but I do listen to people. Um, all the time I have conversations with like, I, w I have a, uh, you know, I just told that story from six years ago in a, a quite a bit of detail because I'm paying attention and I'm listening to everything. And if you don't take any new information and you don't listen, you won't have any recall for it anyway. But I think that, um, you, if you, if you can't take criticism and you can't listen to what people say, your thing is never going to, whatever you're doing is never going to get better. That's true. Cause you're too insecure about it. And I'm always asking for help with things because I don't, you know, I don't need to be right. I don't need it to be perfect. I need it to, you know, hit a certain level, I guess. And if someone has a suggestion, I'm listening. But at the same time, I'm very confident and it verges on arrogance. But, you know, I'm not bothered if somebody thinks I'm arrogant. It really doesn't make any difference to me. I've had plenty of people think that I'm arrogant for years and then I'll say something self-deprecating. They're like, wait a minute, you have a sense of humor? I'm like, yeah, most of the time I'm being arrogant as a joke. <laughs> I do that too sometimes. Well, I mean, it was it happened a couple of years ago, where a, a husband of a friend real clearly did not like me, and um, we were in post production on the movie. And the worst thing you can do when you're when you're working on a movie in post production, especially something that is so low budget, is um, here's here's generally how it works. So. Uh, a bad movie is instructive. So you learn what not to do in the same way that you, you listen to podcasts and you learn what not to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, although I guess we didn't go over all the things that you, you not, you're not to do. We can go back to that, I guess in a couple minutes, but uh, uh, so a bad movie is instructive tells you what not to do. A good movie um, is helpful uh, because it tells you what to emulate. And a great movie is completely dispiriting and is completely the worst thing you can do. Uh, because a great movie is great for inexplicable reasons um, because it overcomes the problems that would occur in by, by form of its greatness, which, and the greatness in and of itself is inexplicable. Like why something is working, you cannot explain it. Um, I can think of tons of examples. One, one that comes to mind right away is uh, uh, my director of photography came over to drop up some footage and fast times at Ridgemont highs on TV. And we're looking at it, we're watching it. And there's so many technical mistakes in Fast Times, like constant. And um, the, the dialogue is not matching the lips. Uh, the, some of the cutting is a little awkward. And we're watching it and we're laughing and we both kind of look at each other and say, yeah, it's, it's frustrating because this, this has all the things that we should avoid, that we're taught to avoid. And it doesn't mm -hmm. matter because the movie's working. It doesn't make any difference. Either it works or it doesn't. Right. And uh, what I remember was while we were post-production, I, uh, my girlfriend and I had gone to see Amadeus, the director's cut of Amadeus in a theater and played, um, close by. And, um, that's a great film, uh, one of the best. And it's a horrible experience, uh, when you're making a movie, when you're making a movie on a low budget and when you watch something like that, cause that movie is about mediocrity. Mm -hmm. It's about a character who's jealous of Mozart's skills and how tossed off all his skills are and how no matter hard, how hard he tries to be great, he cannot because he is mediocre. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. 
No, I haven't seen it. Okay, it's really, really good. But it's also great for anybody who worked in the arts. And because the movie is about, the subject is mediocrity, and it's about how you cannot equal it, and it's such a fantastic movie, when you start comparing yourself to it, you go through this process where it's like, I can I do not have the footage to be great. I know that I, I, I don't, I did, I don't have the skill to make a movie this well for, for the point to come across so efficiently to, to just be so overwhelming emotionally that, that uh, I am completely encompassed and it sucked me in. I don't, I don't, my movie doesn't have this. And I, and it's just a sad feeling like it's a great movie, but at the end I just felt very sad about myself. <laughs> it's like a bit of self pity that, that kicks in. Yeah. And, and someone said to me, but, you know, they had millions of dollars and that movie's the best picture winner. And I'm like, yeah, for good reason. Um, they're like, right, but, you know, they had all that, all that money and they had all that. And I'm like, and I don't. And I don't have the skill and I can't do this. And, I, and they're like, right, but you can't, you can't compare yourself to that. I'm like, but what's amazing about that movie is there's this giant flaw in the middle of it. The, the actress who plays Mozart's wife is really bad in the film. She was a late replacement for uh, an actress who got injured. And she's really quite bad in it. And, and, and it's kind of a distraction. And it, the, it, the movie makes it so it doesn't matter. You watch it and it's like, doesn't make any difference. It's still working. And that's mm-hmm. very frustrating because it's, again, inexplicable. Uh, a month later, I saw Alien and I had the same experience um, where there's plenty of flaws in Alien. Uh, some of the kills are very awkwardly staged. And, does, and it doesn't make any difference. It's, it's just irrelevant. Right. Because uh, the movie's working, but anyway, so I'm telling that story about my experience watching Amadeus and the husband of my friend, who has clearly uh, uh, disliked me for years at that point, <laughs> um, <laughs> suddenly softens to me because he is now is now noticing that I uh, have a you know self, I'm being self-deprecating and that I realize that there are limits and that um, if I may make silly jokes, you know about things uh, that. Uh, that maybe I'm not like 100% arrogant all the time. And that was one of those sort of revealing experiences where people assume that, Oh, you must be, there's all this thing all the time. Like, no, I mean, there's plenty of self-deprecation to go around. Um, but so you were, you were saying, I mean, I have no idea. Was that an interesting, helpful story in any way? I don't know. Um, but uh, you were you were going over like all your things earlier. We skipped around about like all the things. You oh, learned. about what not to do in a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you, you got to be yourself because you listen. Be, to be, be yourself. Um, one of the things I, I was trying to listen to one today, actually, you know, I was like, oh, this guest looks interesting. And I started playing it. And uh, the host like never shut up. Like the guest didn't get a chance to talk until like 20 minutes into the episode. And it's like an hour long episode. You know, so it, it, like I don't get that. Like, what's the point of having a guest? <laughs> you know, if you're just going to talk the whole time. I don't know. I mean, I guess it was it just a monologue the whole time. Yeah, it was just rambling. Really, were you listening to like you know Mark Maron's podcast or something? I, I don't even remember who it was, but I, I mean just that's remember- one of the most famous podcasts in the world. And he famously opens with like 15 minutes of talk before the interview. Yeah, and everyone everyone knows to skip through. <laughs> Now, it wasn't him, but uh, it was just some. It was probably somebody trying to emulate that type of style. But I just found it annoying. You know, I'm like, I'm not going to listen to somebody babble for 15 minutes. Well, it's a balance, right? Because you assume people tune in because they like the host, right? 
I don't know. I, I, I think people who listen to my podcast are going to listen because they like the guest. I don't think it's about me at all. Uh, well, I mean, Gary, you're not likable at all. Why would they listen for you? Exactly. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just some laid back asshole doing a podcast. You know, I, I think the real thing that I do is finding guests, you know, that are interesting and cover topics that are interesting, you know, and, and I'm okay as long as I stay in areas that I'm knowledgeable about, but in areas that I'm not knowledgeable about, I don't do that great. That's why I asked you to help me with Liz. Cause I said, you know what, this is an area where I'm definitely weak. Well, I hope you learned from that episode, like, it's not that hard. It's, you know, granted, I did some research, listened to some stuff, you know, watched a bit of some right. documentaries see, to get some see, background. Yeah, like I'm recording 10 episodes a week and working 50-hour full-time jobs, so mm-hmm. I have no time to interview anyone. I had somebody on this morning, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I, I Googled him. I said, oh, look at that. He's a college professor at Cornell. Mm-hmm. Right. The guy gets on Zoom with me and um, he's another filmmaker and he's autistic. Mm-hmm. Like, Damn, I was way off on that one. <laughs> oh, you, you go, hit, a, hit a common name. It was somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking up the wrong person. Well, don't you ask for a bio? I, I did ask for a bio, but he never sent it to me. Oh, okay. and uh, but it, it turned out fine. Like he was really a, a, a sweet kid. and I enjoyed the interview. So it was nice. Right. I mean, as long as you're listening when you interview and then you follow along, I mean, the worst experience is when you have to do the heavy lifting and you know it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that was like with, uh, I had one interview with this kid Tanner about, it was supposed to be about cryptozoology and, and he knew absolutely nothing about it. It was brutal. Did you, uh, did you end up airing it or not really? Yeah, I aired it. Um, he was recently, <laughs> actually, he was recently on Mind Dog. Okay. And um, in, in the episode, he's, he's you know, Mind Dog's like on TV, you know, it's all video. And right. he's sitting. Oh, is this in- the one? See, Matt told me about this yesterday. Was that the one where the guy in the background, his like family was having dinner? Yes. That's the dude. <laughs> and his sister comes out and her ass is hanging out. And mm-hmm. It's just terrible. <laughs> It, it, like I aired it because it was it was so bad that I thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Matt did tell me about that last night. He said that uh, that uh, there were a couple of uh, poor episodes within a week. Yeah, he had so, a rough week. Yeah, <laughs> the midget, the homeless guy. Yeah, Tanner. Yep. <laughs> I, I've had I've had some rough what, weeks. What's too, the overlap with people who listen to this and listen to Mind Dog? Is it just 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 three of us? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, there's more because I uh, there, there is one like there's a uh, Angie Byers definitely listens to both. Mm-hmm. She just started her own podcast. She's from Australia, mm-hmm. and it, and there's probably more because every once in a while, like Mind Dog will get like a guest that he'll think will be good on my show, and he'll send it my way. Mm-hmm. Or or vice versa. So we kind of work together a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the last time I was on his show, besides yesterday, I had to follow Doug Stanhope, so it was not so simple. Whoa, <laughs> he'd been on earlier that day, um, and he was still he still had a buzz about him about it. And I'm a huge Stanhope fan, and I've seen him live several times. Um, uh, I listen to Stanhope's podcast as well. 
Um, but now that now that our commutes are shorter uh, and uh, you know um, people have have to the chores that I might have to do uh, can be split up between my girlfriend and I because she's mm-hmm. working out of the house. There's a lot less podcasting time than there used to be. Yeah. I used to easily do two, three hours a day, and now I'm probably at about 45 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And even less now that I'm doing an interview every day, pretty much. Yeah. So yeah. I'm scheduled like, for one tomorrow. I've got another one Tuesday. I'll probably put something in together, like, you know, something over the weekend, all that stuff. Yeah. That's like me, too. I spend more, way more time making episodes than I do anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I do have a chance to listen to something, it's usually music. Right. All right, are we are we hitting our uh, our wall here? Yeah, I have to say I'm pretty hungry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you didn't eat dinner yet. I ate dinner a couple hours ago, so yeah, my wife um, some teriyaki chicken. I can smell it. It's driving me nuts. Well, then you should you should go do that, and let me put in my plug. If anybody made it this far, yes. Um, so uh, go see Wait Wait Don't Kill Me starting Friday, October twenty third. Uh, Lemley.com. You can already uh, you know bookmark it now. Uh, depending on when you hear this. Um, uh, and you can stream it at home. Um, you'll, you know, they'll go through the process, uh, pay for your ticket. And then if you get a couple of days after you start or after you buy the ticket, it'll still be available. You can go back to the website. And if you didn't finish it all in one, in one uh, shot and uh, go to wait, wait, don't kill me.com. If you're hearing this after that, or you want to watch like the trailer or TV spots or whatever, and learn more about the movie there or hear me ramble on, on other, uh, podcasts although i have not put up any sections of the four-hour podcast that i was when i talked for four hours straight i have not done that because it's just (laughs) too much editing (laughs) i am the opposite of you gary and that i'm much more perfectionist in this um and you you like the lack of perfection and that that i am not i'm not for that yeah i'm sort of uh i don't know I'm just a production machine, you know. I just put out tons of content and hope for the best. You want you want to have lots of children. You don't care what kind of children they are. Exactly. Some will survive. Some won't. Right. <laughs> it's all a numbers game. All right. Um, I'm I'm good. And if you are, yeah, I'm good too, man. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks, Gary. Have a good night. You too. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. And it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.